make ready. Um, I'm sure in like history class growing up, I'd studied some, heard some of this um, about how military tactics kind of worked and specifically thinking about the 1700s and the American Revolution. But it was when I saw the movie The Patriot. I don't know if you've seen the movie, Mel Gibson stars in it. And um, it's kind of this historical action. They look back to this period of time. And the thing that, that kind of just blew me away when I watched it um, is the fact that they would literally line up man-to-man across from each other. And these folks would literally, I mean, you hear this statement, make ready, aim, fire, boom, 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 boom. And all these people just be mowed down. And then, this was what just absolutely baffled me because I watched it, is that literally the other side then would return fire. And as they are returning fire, this other side is making ready again to fire back, not knowing if they're going to be struck or what's going to happen. And I thought in that moment, man, what courage... I was feeling more like I probably need, I would need a Marty McFly moment, like make like a tree and what? Leave, right? I don't know if any of you have seen the Back to the Futures ever. But anyway, if you have, the, there's your, there's your um, quota for the day. But anyway, nonetheless, I mean, it was just, it was, it was unbelievable to think that there was this type of warfare happening where men would stand across from other men, literally raising their muskets there, aiming at each other. Make ready, aim, fire, boom, 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 boom. Un. Believable. And there's that statement, make ready. So this morning, I want us to begin to think about that. That you've got a call to make ready. And oftentimes it's in the midst of firing. Oftentimes you have a call to make ready in the midst of chaos around you. And specifically what I want us to do is, is, is look to the, have the idea of what's it look like when you suffer? Right? Are you ready to suffer? Why are you suffering? What's happening in your life around you? And and this is going to prepare us next, hopefully in the coming weeks, we're going to look forward to 1 Peter chapter 2. But he says literally, make ready. It was in Genesis chapter 18. In Genesis chapter 18, there's a man by the name of Abraham. He's the father of the faith. You may have heard that song, Father Abraham. Well, God makes a promise to this man that, hey, listen, from you, I'm going to make a multitude of descendants um, that are going to reach across the sand of the seashore. And um, he says, listen, it, your descendants, you have no idea how, how much I'm going to bless you and all people on the face of the earth through you. In Genesis 18, Abraham is sitting there, and it says these three strangers begin to walk up. And the custom of that day and time is you would take care uh, of anybody that was an outsider, anybody that may be traveling through. Um, that was a, a hospitality was huge. And so Abraham sees these three coming. They kind of have this quick dialogue, and he says to his wife, literally, make ready. Get the food ready. He's going to have this dialogue with them and come to find out one of them is actually God. It's this amazing moment where God shows up in the flesh and begins to talk to Abraham. And we're reminded of the fact that when we encounter God, we've got to do some preparation. We've got to make ready. There's a response to who God is. Not only that, it was in John chapter 9. In John chapter 9, Jesus and the disciples are passing through and they encounter that there's a man there and he's been blind from birth. And the disciples asked, Jesus' followers asked him an important question. They said, Lord, who, who sinned, this guy or his parents, that he was born blind? Like, surely, like in that day of time, if something went wrong, it's because you messed up. And Jesus says, well, actually, neither. He says, you see, this man was born blind so that the glory of God might be displayed in him. Literally said, God made this man to make him ready for a moment when I would come on his scene and I would touch him blind man who's been blind all of his life would be healed you see he was made ready for that 
This man will come under questioning from the religious leaders. And in verse 25 of John chapter 9, they're going to ask him to say, listen, tell us, is this man a sinner? And he says, well, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. But one thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. That's where Paul is. You see, Paul had a moment where he thought he could see the world so clearly, but God in Acts chapter 9, Jesus blinds him on the road to Damascus. And when he is blinded, he begins to realize, I, listen, I once thought I could see, but now after Christ has blinded me, I've come to the truth that Christ is truly the Lord of glory. He's the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Jesus is the Savior. Paul would say, I was blind, but now I see. And now because I see, everything for me has changed. I am now, because of what Jesus has done for me, I have been made ready. And so that kind of prepares us of what the response is. All throughout Scripture, back to Abraham, Moses, others, everybody. When you encounter God, there's a preparation, a response to be made ready for whatever you may suffer or experience. And so there's Paul. Paul is, um, let's move forward here. Paul is... Parting from them, it says, he's, verse 1 of Acts 21, he sets sail. Um, he travels throughout and says in verse 3, they come in sight of Cyprus. So remember, he's just left the place of Milta. He'd been meeting with the Ephesian elders. And we walked through so much there in Acts chapter 20 as he prepares this church for his departure. It says, on leaving, le- uh, leaving it to the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload its cargo. Verse 4 of Acts 21. Having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. This is his first warning. This is a warning that says, listen, Paul, if you go, again, it's through the Spirit, Paul, if you go to Jerusalem, bad things are going to happen. Now, what we remember from Paul back in Acts chapter 20, he says, I am being, remember we talked about that, being constrained by the Spirit. Literally, the Spirit is pressing upon me. I'm, I'm compelled to go. I'm urged to respond by God's Spirit. I can't deny this. He says, but the Spirit does warn me that prisons and afflictions do await. And so Paul is there and he says, listen, I am I'm being warned. That's what Luke, as he records the account, he says the Spirit was telling Paul, the, 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 the disciples saying, listen, Paul, if you go to Jerusalem, bad things are going to happen. And so the question oftentimes for you and I is if you know it's going to come at a cost to follow God's will for your life, to follow what God's Word says despite your desires, despite what you most want, It's going to prove costly. And the question is, will you continue? Will you follow God's leading and God's word despite the cost? There he is. But it says, look what it says there, verse 5. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. Paul says, listen, despite the warnings, right? Despite the fact that the Spirit through them was telling them not to go to Jerusalem, Paul says, listen, we still have a mission. I still have a calling that I can't escape. I still have a responsibility according to what Christ has done for me. I was blind, guys, and now I see. I can't deny what God has shown me, what He has made me aware of. The fact that He is doing a work through His Holy Spirit. I, 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 listen, I'm with you. So it says, they all with wives and children accompanying us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Some of you, it may be time to say farewell. God has been preparing you and and the cost, and indeed, yes, it's great, but 
Do you realize you've got to respond to what God's calling you to do? Others may be telling you, listen, if you do this, it's dangerous. It may cost you. You don't understand where this is going to lead. And you may not even know necessarily where this road leads, but there is something about saying, I must get on board this ship. I've got to follow. I've got to move forward. I've got to be obedient in this moment. So it says when we had finished the voyage, they continue on. And the next day, verse 8, it says we departed and came to Caesarea and we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, one of the seven. Back to Acts chapter six, when the church was going through a hard time, they, they called up these seven men to be able to help deal with things. And, and many believe that these were the first deacons or at least represent well the role of deacons to come alongside when there's issues of church unity, there's challenges. These deacons are servants, men who people respect and they look to and they come alongside to help the church in difficult times. It says Philip, he, he's an evangelist. He's sharing the gospel. But he was also one of the seven, similar like Stephen was, who was killed at the end of Acts 7. And they stay at his house. It says in verse 9 that he has four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, now a prophet named Agabus, who we encounter back in Acts eleven twenty eight, And it said that there was this prophet by the name of Agabus who would come on the scene and said, listen, there's going to be a severe famine throughout the entire Roman world. And it said it happened during the reign of Claudius. This guy is a prophet that is well known. His, his, his teaching is respected. And look what it says. He comes on the scene and he comes to us. Verse 11 of Acts 21. And he takes Paul's belt takes it off of Paul and he begins to bind his own hands and his feet. And he says, thus says the Holy Spirit. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and will deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So now we've had the people warning through the Spirit. Now we have a prophet, right? A messenger of God who shows up on the scene and says, I want you to know the Holy Spirit is warning you, Paul, if you follow this course, I want you to know what's coming. This is a severe warning. This is a warning that would be like, whoa, right? I mean, this is a moment maybe you've had moments in life where you've been told, listen, don't take that next step. Don't do it. Don't, this is going to prove too costly. Be careful right now. Listen to what he says. He says, listen, the Holy Spirit's saying this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt. They're going to, they're going to, Paul, they're going to bind you. Paul, you, you, you know what they already did to your Lord and Savior Jesus. You know what they did to, to Stephen when he spoke the truth there in Jerusalem. Paul, you remember how you were there in, in Acts chapter 9 after your life had just been changed? You remember that soon after they rejected your testimony, we had to let you down through a basket in the wall and let you out of there. Why would you go back? Not only that, they're going to give you to the hands of the Romans. And we know what the Romans do to those who cause to become insurrectionists. Those that cause problems in the Roman world, you get taken care of. They just empty you off the scene. They, 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 they crucify you. They take care of you. They beat you, whatever it is, to bring you into submission or they would just take your life. He says, Paul, I want you to know that's where you're headed, brother. And it's the Holy Spirit that is warning this, giving this warning. It's interesting. Look what Paul says, though, in response to this. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. And so I guess for a moment of just context there, we had the people back there warning him previously through the Spirit, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. Now a prophet says, if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to be, you're going to be captured. They're, they're going to put chains on you, and then they're going to hand you over to the Romans, the Gentiles. The people now hear this, and this is their beloved Paul, and they are urging him not to go. Paul, don't do it. Paul, please don't go, Paul. Please, Paul, don't go, Paul. Paul, don't, don't, don't follow this, Paul. Paul answers, what are you doing? 
What are you doing? You're weeping. You're breaking my heart. Literally, the Greek behind it indicates there's a, they are pressing upon Paul so deeply his emotions as if he's being torn apart on the inside. You guys are breaking me up on the inside. He says, what are you doing? And then he says this statement, for I am ready. Paul, you understand they're going to put you in chains. Paul, do you understand that you may die for this? He says, listen, guys, I want you to know I am ready. I'm ready, he says, not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul says, I'm ready. In Genesis chapter 22, the same man that we talked about earlier, Abraham, God came to him. And he said, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son, your beloved son, the son of the promise, Isaac. I want you to take him and sacrifice him. And then in verse 3 of Genesis chapter 22, just a verse or two after God speaks to Abraham. It says, and that morning he got up, saddled up the ride, and they headed out. Abraham said, I'm ready. Some of you, God is calling you to make a great sacrifice. It may be to surrender hopes and dreams and what mama or daddy always dreamed you would do or what the family always thought you would do or what everybody else around you has thought you would do. But there is something about Christ that is compelling you, that is calling you. This sacrifice is worth it. I know you're laying this down. I know you may be leaving this behind. I know you may not be able to stay in Greensburg where your family is and all your friends are. I realize that, but I am calling you. Abraham said, Lord, I'm ready. I'm ready. This is my hopes. These are my dreams, Lord. This, this, is, this is your promise, God. I, I don't understand it, but I'm ready. In Exodus chapter 3, we encounter another great name, another one that was challenged to ask, are you ready? Moses was tending the sheep, and in the midst of tending the sheep, he sees this great vision of this, this bush that was doing what? Do you remember? It was burning, right? But it wasn't consumed. And he said, this is a curious thing. I'm going to go and see it. And as he came close, God called out to Moses from this burning bush, Moses, Moses! Take off your sandals. For where you are standing is holy ground. Moses has this great dialogue with God, asking him who he is. And he says simply, I am who I am. And then in Exodus chapter 4, we encounter Moses continuing on of God having this conversation of saying, Moses, I'm calling you to go back to your people there in the land of Egypt and deliver them out to tell them that the great I am is coming to deliver his people. You are my messenger. Moses, are you ready? And he says, Lord, I'm not ready. Lord, I can't speak. Everybody knows I can't speak. Lord, I, I see. You know Moses' story. It's probably yours. You've got all the excuses why you can't do what God's calling you to do. You've got all these reasons of things that you're not good at or your other people are better at. I mean, he says, surely, I mean, Aaron, others, I mean, they can talk. I mean, surely, I mean, somebody else can, can do that. Somebody else can fill that role in the church. Somebody else can do that in our community. God, surely you can raise somebody else up and call them to go to the nations. I mean, God, I'm not. But finally, after a lot of moments, difficult moments, we come to verse 20 of Exodus chapter 4, and it says that Moses took the staff of God in his hand and he went. Finally, Moses said, Lord, I'm ready. Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah 6 begins, it tells us, in the year that King Uzziah died. Isaiah, this great prophet of the Old Testament. It says he sees the Lord seated high above in his throne of his temple. It says the train of his robe fills the temple. And there's these seraphim, these holy creatures that are flying around God's throne day and night. It says they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. 
The whole earth is full of His glory. Isaiah sees this and says his eyes see the King of glory. And he says, woe is me, I am ruined, for I am unclean. He says, I'm a sinner. And everybody else I know, Lord, they are sinners. We are ruined. And see, some of you, that's your story. God's calling you to make you ready. He says, are you ready? You say, no, no, God, I, I just got too much junk in my trunk. God, I got too much in my closet. Now, listen, we need to repent of that and come clean. We need to come and get that cleansing. But some of you are using that excuse as why you can't go forward because of what you did 20 years ago or two weeks ago or whatever. And God is saying, I am calling you. Are you ready? So one of these great creatures, this seraphim, come with the tongs from this altar there in the presence of God. And they come and it says that it touches Isaiah's lips. And he says, see there, your sin is atoned for. Your iniquity, your sin has been taken away from you. Ultimately, looking forward to the cross. And then comes forth this great anthem from the Lord Jesus, the Lord Himself. And He says, then who shall go for us and whom shall I send? He says, who's ready? Who's ready? And Isaiah responds in verse 8 of Isaiah 6, Here am I, what? Send me. Here am I, send me. Right, that question that we all have to answer. And we're asking that maybe of Paul, like Paul, why Paul? Why, Paul, are you ready? And Paul would simply say to us, listen, he says, for I am ready not only to, to, to be bound, but to die in Jerusalem. Why, Paul? Why? For the name of the Lord Jesus. You see, Paul would stand with us and say that, listen, Bill and Gloria Gaither were on to something. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. There's something about that name. You see, I know, Mama, you don't understand why i got to go. I know, Mama, I know, I, Daddy, I'm leaving. I know, Granny and Grandpa, I, I, know, you, I know you don't understand why i got to leave. But He's a Master. You see, others of you say, listen, you, you don't get it. I mean, you don't get it. I'm so weak. I'm so weak. I don't have, I mean, I've got all the reasons why I can't. But there's something about Jesus. Others of you are just, as you deal with it, you're thinking, Lord, I, I would really want to if I just hadn't done that. God, if that just wasn't on my past resume. But there's something about that name Savior that just keeps coming up saying, we're, we're grace, we're sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. There's something so freeing about what He's done for me. I know people may think there's no way I could ever do that, but there's something about His grace. So I just simply stand and say, let all heaven and earth proclaim. Kings and kingdoms will all pass away, but there's something about that name. That's where Paul is. I'm ready to not only be bound, but to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. There's something about His name. There's something about what He's done for me that nobody else could ever do. You see, I once was blind, but now I see. I once was bound, but now I'm free. There's something about what He's doing. And so, verse 14 says... And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. What a moment, huh? What a terrifying moment. A terrifying moment for the church. A terrifying moment maybe for you as a parent or grandparent, as a friend. To realize that God's doing a great work in someone maybe you love and care about. And you just have to simply step back and say, Lord, let the will of the Lord be done. Some of you care about someone greatly and they're in the midst of suffering and you can't cause that disease to go away. You can't bring healing to their body that's hurting. 
And you just simply have to, you're praying, you're crying out, you're fasting, you've asked others to pray. But at this point, nothing's changing. You're simply just saying, Lord, let your will be done. Oh, Father, I'm praying for this. I'm crying out for this. Paul's there. He won't be persuaded. Saying, Jerusalem's my course, guys. Just like Jesus, right? He would not be deterred. Even even Peter tried to deter Jesus from his course. Surely not you, Lord. You'll, You'll never die, Lord. Surely not you. Get thee behind me, Satan. For you have in mind the things of man, not the things of God. See, Jesus would not be persuaded. He was convinced of God's course for his life. Well, Paul will now finally, in verse 15, come to Jerusalem. And in verse 15 of Acts 21, it says, After these days we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And now the question becomes, what's going to happen here? The Spirit had been warning Paul personally. The church had been warning Paul through the Spirit. Agabus the prophet had warned them. The church had begged Paul not to go. Presumably those that are going with Paul are begging Paul not to go. But he says, Master, Savior, Jesus, I must go. So it says... um, they, they bring him to the house of Manasseh and, and son of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom he should lodge. And so when he comes to this place of staying there, he says, We had come to Jerusalem. The brothers received us glad. The church comes to welcome him. It says on the following day, verse 18 of Acts 21, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. Now remember, throughout the church, right, if you walk through specifically the book of 1 Corinthians and others, we're, we're aware of the fact that Paul has been taking up this offering. All the Gentile churches have been giving to help the Jews in Jerusalem, those followers of Christ, the disciples of Christ in Jerusalem to help them out. They were very poor. They were struggling. Much had gone on. And so he shows up with money. To share with them from the churches, saying, listen, guys, we are one in the bond of love. It's true. We are one. And he also begins to share about his ministry. He says, after greeting them, verse 19, he related one by one the things that God had done. I wonder if that's where that verse came, song came from. Count your many blessings. Name them what? One by one. Count your many blessings. See the things that God has done. I, I don't know if that's where it came from, but literally there it is. So he relates one by one the things that God had done. When's the last time you did that? Just sit down and made a list of the things God's been doing. Some of you, in response to your call of what God's been making you ready for, you, you might just need to sit down and make a list over the last few weeks, months, years of all the things that God's doing and saying, this all seems to point the same direction. That's what he is there. He says he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And then this. The scene is almost a scene change and there's a moment in which now we begin to get aware The Spirit was right. Trouble's brewing. When they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to Him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you. That you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. And this is the moment of great perplexity. Why? If you were with us a few weeks back, Paul, they've heard about you and they think you're a wolf. Paul, they've heard about everything you're doing out there amongst the Gentiles. And these folks, they are zealous for the law and they think you're a wolf, bro. They think you've come here to deter their focus and worship of Christ, but also as they look back to their, their, their fathers, Abraham and Moses and all of that, Paul, they look at all of that and they think, Paul, that you might be a wolf. 
So what would happen here? The text tells us in verse 33, do therefore what we tell you. All right. So the leadership of the church has come to meet with Paul. This is a great moment. This is a challenging moment. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. All right. So commentators are, are divided on what all's happening here. All right. So maybe I'll read the rest of the text and then just for a moment we'll try to dialogue about it. Thus also we'll know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. All right. Now, this, this is challenging, right? Some of you are already thinking like letters like Galatians. Um, when we, you were here with us several years ago. We walked through that entire book. It says the question was Christ plus what equals salvation? And Paul says Christ plus nothing, right? Christ not plus the law. Christ not plus circumcision. Christ plus. I mean, there's nothing. It's Christ alone, right? Galatians 2 and 21. If righteousness could be obtained through the law, if you could be a good enough person by obeying the law, he says, then Christ died for nothing. So then why are they asking Paul, right, to live in observance of the law? You yourself. All right, so listen, I know for time's sake today, we won't have ability to deal with all this, but let's do our best for a moment. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment. They should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. So really quickly, what we're making the line of demarcation, I guess, so to speak, is, is that this is not dealing with the Gentiles, but these are Jewish people who have become Christians. All right. So they've grown up with all the customs, all the laws, the temple worship. All of these things are part of the Jewish life. And the question now is, what do they separate from that? And now as they follow Christ, I'm going to be really, really transparent here and say, I don't understand a lot of this. I wish I did. I wish I understood it more. I'll be really honest and just say I, I struggled with understanding, interpreting this text. And I think to some extent, uh, I was out the other day, I was running and with the boys and I was just praying over it saying, God, I don't have a clue what to say. And I felt like the Lord just reminded me saying, hey, listen, isn't that sometimes how suffering is? Like, why, God? Like, I don't get this. Like, this doesn't seem to make any sense. I, don't, I can't rightly like, I can't put this like in all the interpretive categories to like make sense of like, I don't understand. Like, why is my kid sick? Or like, why is our family going through this? Or like, why our job now? Or like, And so it's kind of hard. So anyway, but look what we have here. A couple things. All right, kind of maybe pull this out and hopefully make some sense of it. So he says that they may shave their heads. All right, so this seems to connect to the Nazarite vow. So you can read in Numbers chapter 6, Nazarite vows. And you you remember some of that was Samson, right, not cutting his hair. So maybe if you know some of that story, it kind of makes a little bit of sense. But part of what they would do, a Nazarite vow would, hey, you wouldn't take strong drink. Um, They couldn't touch dead bodies, right? A lot of things that Samson kind of messed up on. Um, and they also had this time period, right? They're waiting, not cutting their hair, right? So sometimes it's a period of 30 days. We're not necessarily sure. But interesting here is what happens, all right? And this is the text, and this is where it gets really, really challenging. Verse 26. Then Paul took the man, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went to the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. Now, according to Numbers chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, this would involve a male and a female lamb, a ram, a cereal, and a drink offering. And that, for me, just doesn't make sense. Like, I thought there was only one sacrificial lamb. I thought, like John said in John 1, 29, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So we've got to make some interpretive decisions here as we come to this and realize that Paul must obviously be dealing with the fact that these are about ceremonial laws. Not about sacrificial in regards to making them righteous or holy before God. Why? Because there's only one that can do that, and that's Christ. Paul has staked his claim on it. In fact, in Galatians, he'll come and tell the church, if I've messed up on this, then my entire ministry has been a waste. 
Right. If it's only if it's something more than Christ, then everything I've done has been a waste. And, and the church absolutely says, absolutely not. It's Christ alone. So Paul is here. And what we must see is that, listen, let me just read this for a moment. The Jewish believers can continue to live by Jewish practices, provided it does not compromise either their salvation or the association and outreach to Gentiles. All right, so the Jewish people can continue these ceremonial practices as long as it doesn't violate, obviously, their salvation, that they're not depending upon any sacrifice to make them right or holy before God. Only Christ could do that. And it doesn't hinder their worship or outreach to Gentiles. And I think maybe a, a text that's going to provide some clarity is this one. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul says to the church at Corinth, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. Paul is saying this is a great moment of humility. Right? I mean, you've you probably had moments like this in, in marriages or in relationships with others. If you've been in the church very long, you've probably had moments like this. Moments when you had to surrender and say, Listen, I, this, is, this is bigger than me. This is about the, the good of the church. This is about um, us remaining in unity. This is about God's will. It's bigger than me. As much as I may think this is the right decision or whatever. Look what he says here. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. That's what Paul's doing here. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. Though not being myself under the law. Paul says, this, listen, I, I didn't have to do that, guys. But this was about helping them, bringing unity why? That I might win those under the law. Paul says, look, he's saying this is about God reaching them. All right, so further with me. Again, this is a challenging text. We're doing our best to interpret it. Sometimes we come to the Bible and just say, you know what? Those are hard things. I don't really understand those. Um, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. No, he's speaking to Gentiles. He's saying, listen, Gentiles didn't have the Old Testament. They didn't have all the ceremonial laws, the ritual laws, the sacrificial laws, all of these laws, right? He says, listen, when I came to minister to them, I, I became as one that didn't have these laws. Look what he says, though, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, which would compel us to love God and love people. Right. Why, Paul? Why would you live this way again that I might win those outside the law? And in this statement, verse 22, um, it, I remember early on in my ministry, this was one of the verses that God began to really just pour into my life to the weak. I became weak that I might win the weak. He's saying, listen, for the Gentiles that don't have the law, I lived as one that didn't have the law to reach them. And then he says this statement. I've become all things to all people that by all possible means I might save some. Why, Paul? I do it all for the sake of the gospel. Paul says this is about Christ. These are messy moments, right? Jews and Gentiles, we, we don't live in that world anymore. But listen, that's what's so difficult happening here. How the Jewish people begin to make separations from what they knew about all the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. At the same time, how do they let these outsiders, these Gentile people, these unclean people, how do they now welcome them into fellowship? Right? So much of that is in the New Testament. As you read that, you've got to understand that lens. They are battling heavily with that. How do we do this right, guys? How do we make sense of this? And Paul says, I've become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save or I might win some. Paul says the ultimate goal is to bring them to Christ. Well, the seven days are almost completed. Verse 27 tells us, and the Jews from Asia see him in the temple and they stir up the whole crowd and lay hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. 
Moreover, he even brought Greeks in the temple and has defiled this holy place. And say, who do you bring in, right? That, that would be against, clearly against the law, right? In fact, there's an inscription as you walk in the temple for the Gentiles. says, if you cross this threshold, you do so at the cost of your own life. And they're saying, Paul is guilty of that. Well, look what happens, though. Verse 29, Luke tell, clues us in. He says, for they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him in the temple, but he actually hadn't. Right, they'd seen him walking around, so they see Paul these other guys, and they assume Paul must be letting Gentiles in. And some of you are saying, this doesn't make any sense. Well, maybe this image, I don't know how clear it'll be, but maybe this imagery will make a little bit of sense for you, all right? So we have the Gentiles right here in the courtyard, right? That's as far as they could go, right? You see the gate here, it's kind of guarding the way in. And, and so we have some different gates, people that can enter through. Um, and so kind of what you think about is these four rectangles that kind of fit inside of each other. So the first one would be the women's courtyard, right? So the women, they, have a, they can go so far, and then at point, there becomes the Israelite courtyard, right? Here, this area that comes in. And so it's kind of the second area. Then we have the holy place, right, where the priest could enter in. And then finally, inside the holy place, we have kind of this fourth rectangle inside there, this small area that's called the Holy of Holies, that the high priest could enter only one day of year. So there's always limitations. And they're saying Paul has broken this. And so literally they are furious with him. They want him to be killed. They want him to be stoned. And so that's what's happening here. So kind of understand the imagery may make a little sense. It says all the city stirred up, verse 30, and the people ran together. They seized Paul. They dragged him out of the temple. And at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. So the Roman soldiers come flying the scene. Why? Because chaos is broken loose, right? That's Roman's job. They suppress. Anybody that brings up against it rises up. They suppress you. They push you down. They'll kill you, take you out, whatever. All right, so they stop beating Paul when this happens. The tribune comes and he, he arrests him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. This is what Agabus was talking about. He said, listen, the Jews are going to hand you over to the Romans, is ultimately what he said. And this is exactly what took place. He begins to ask who he is, and some people are shouting one thing and some another. He can't figure out exactly, and so they say, let's get him back in the barracks. And says so the crowd is going chaotic, right? And they're yelling, away with him, away with him, similar to what Jesus was when it came time for him to die. Crucify him, crucify him. And isn't that amazing, though? That here's the great Apostle Paul, and it presumes to be God's will to allow Paul to suffer. Have you ever thought about that? That your suffering in this life could actually be a part of God's plan for you and for others? That's kind of a big picture where I wanted to hopefully end up today. It's kind of where we're driving this course to. This idea of making ready. I wanted you to realize, hey, listen, God may be making you ready, but the path He may have for you may be one of suffering and chains, imprisonment. may not be physical, but it may be you may be separated from family and loved ones because you're following the course that God has for you. I, I, I don't know. Some of you are dealing with sicknesses and other things. God, how could this ever be your will? But in fact, what we see in Acts chapter 9, verse 16, when, when there's um, uh, this man... Is told to go and pray over Paul, right? He's been blinded. He says, Lord, I know I've heard about him. He, he, he kills your servants. He is a bad, bad dude. And he says, listen, I want you to know, verse 16 of Acts 9, that he's my chosen instrument and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. God says, listen, this, was, this is in fact my plan for Paul to suffer for my name. And some of you are wondering, God, how could it ever be your plan for me to suffer? God, I don't, I don't get how God could ever allow people he loves and cares about to suffer. That seems contradictory to the fact that he's a good God. But that's what's happening with Paul. 
It wasn't just Paul. All throughout the Bible, we see people that God is allowed to suffer and He uses it for His glory. And none more so than Isaiah 53. In Isaiah 53, we hear about this suffering servant. And then we come to a verse that is... It's, it's audacious. It's an amazing verse. And in verse 10 of Isaiah 53, it says about this suffering servant looking forward to Christ that is coming. It says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him and cause him to suffer. That he might make his life a peace offering for you. You see, we oftentimes say, God, I don't like the fact that it could ever be your will or your plan for me to go through this period of suffering or trial. I don't, I don't like that about God. No, listen, you better pause for a moment and say, you know what, God, I, I love it. I may not understand it. I may not like it in the moment. But God, I know that you're doing something great about it. Why? How do I know that? Because I know in Isaiah 53 and 10, it was your will, it was your plan to crush and to cause your son to suffer that I might be free. Your plan of suffering brought me freedom, God. You used it for your glory. You used it to deliver me from, from eternal separation from you. So, God, I'm in the midst of suffering right now, and God, I can't always see the big picture. God, I don't know where this may lead and head, but I know on the basis of what you've done with Christ and so many others that you use suffering for your glory and for your good. And because you are Jesus, Master, Savior, Lord, here's my life. Make me ready. Would you pray with me? Father, in the name of Jesus. God, we don't understand suffering. It's amazing to me, God, as I read this text. Lord, I, there's so much of it I don't understand. God, not only about suffering, but all that Paul's doing. And Father, let us come. And I, I thank you that you, you said in John 16 that when the Holy Spirit comes, that he will lead people into all the truth. And so I'm praying that you'll lead your people into the truth as they, they, as they hear a message like this of how in the world could it ever be God's plan that I would experience this. God, I, I, can't, I can't explain that. I, I don't know, Lord. So those that are suffering here today, whether that's physical, emotional, relational, those that are thinking about hard, unbelievable times they experienced five years ago or ten years ago or twenty years ago when that person died or that happened, and they're saying, so you're telling me that was God's will? I, all I know is that God uses, even as Joseph said, what was intended for evil. I'm not saying these things aren't evil, God. There's a lot of bad, bad things that happen. But I know that you can even take the evil moments and use them for good. And so, Lord, I thank you. I just submit my life to a God who is that great because I can't make sense out of these things. I can't answer all the questions here today of people. Lord, there are many people in this church I know right now who are suffering greatly. And Lord, I just I pray right now by the abundance of your grace that even though they can't understand and even though they don't know where this, this road might lead them, they would just come and say, God, I, I'm ready. I'm ready. Not in my own strength, but I'm ready because the name of the Lord Jesus is worth it. And if you want to use this, my suffering, my hardship, these terrible things that have happened for your glory, God, I'm ready. Lord, I pray you would just call people today. Just the truth of the gospel. Thank you for your son. That was your goodwill and good pleasure to crush him and to cause him to suffer. For people like me. For others that are here today. I pray they're just dealing with that, saying, how in the world could someone like Jesus die for me? Perfect for the unperfect. The holy and righteous for the unrighteous. 
Lord, I just pray it would just move their heart and say, I, I don't understand it all, but I do know that I was blind and now I see. Jesus, Master, Savior, ready and willing, here am I. Send me. I pray this in hopes of what the Spirit will do by the truth of Your Word for the glory of Your Son, Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus, bring forth Your kingdom and Your power in this place. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.